this series um, where we're getting second opinions on things in our lives, things that we seem fairly certain of, things that the world speaks into our lives all the time as truth. We're walking through the book of Luke. Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. He wrote the most detailed account of Jesus' life. And this Mother's Day, we're going to look at a famous story um, in in the book of Luke, and the doctor, he does not disappoint again this week. I mean, I might, but, but his word doesn't. Now, before we start, I have to give you a little bit of a Mother's Day unrelated piece. It's kind of interesting because um, Luke in chapter 8 starts with just a, a very miscellaneous thing. And if you're just reading the scripture, you might not pick up on it. But ladies, I have to share this with you. Um, in Jesus' day... In, in first century Palestine, it was not so much a glass ceiling that women were hoping to break through. It was more like a bolted door they were hoping to escape from. Let me give you uh, some examples. For example, women were not allowed to vote uh, or to even forget about voting. They weren't even allowed as a witness in court. In effect, this categorized them with other witnesses that were not allowed uh, to testify uh, with people like Gentiles, minors, deaf-mutes, and other undesirables such as gamblers. Women shared that category. Customarily in the first century into the world, in the world into which Jesus was born, uh, even a woman of some stature could not engage in commerce. She could rarely be seen outside of her home. If a woman was ever in the streets, she was to be heavily veiled. She was prohibited from conversing with men. According to a religious text of the time period, quote, It is the way of a woman to stay at home, and it is the way of a man to go out into the marketplace. In Talmudic times, respectable women were expected to stay within the confines of the home. In fact, check this out, the terminology for a prostitute was, quote, one who goes abroad. Now, in terms of education, the rabbis of the day did not consider it incumbent upon women to learn to read in order to study the scriptures. They misinterpreted a a verse in in the book of Deuteronomy that said, teach the word, teach them to thy sons. So the rabbis declared, well, women, they're exempt from the commandments to learn the law of Moses. The Talmud actually says, quote, it is foolishness to teach the Torah to your daughter. Women were separated from men in private, public, and religious life. They could go to the temple, but they couldn't venture beyond the confines of the women's court. Women weren't allowed to participate in public prayer at the temple. In fact, one passage in the Talmud sums it up this way, quote, women are to be swathed like a mourner, referring to their face and hair covering, isolated from people and shut up in prison. This is the world to which Jesus Christ was born. And into that culture, Luke writes this little, I mean, you read chapter 8 and you you wouldn't pick this up, but I have to share it with you ladies about, about your Jesus Luke begins chapter 8 saying this. After this, Jesus traveled. Remember, we just talked about women traveling. Jesus traveled around from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, the disciples that you're aware of, you've heard of, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. Check this out, ladies. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. It's not the sermon topic for today, Mother's Day, but I could not just run by that detail because I want you to understand something. 
I don't know who I want to understand it more, men or women, but Jesus taught the value of women. Jesus changed the role and the destiny of women unlike any historical figure ever known. And there are more stories of Jesus' interaction with women in the book of Luke than any other gospel. If you're getting the weekly Luke readings right now, and if you're not, please go out to the Welcome Center. I want you to work through this with us. But if you're getting the weekly Luke readings, watch for how Jesus interacts with women. The fact that Luke records this would have been scandalous in that era. But he wants you to know it. Now, as I shared, I was out of Pine Ridge. One of the best things that happens on a missions trip is that you begin to spend large amount of time with people that you usually only get to spend like a small amount of time a Sunday morning with. Now, here's, here's what you learn along the way. Sometimes the reason you like people is that you only do spend short amounts of time with them. And when you're on a mission trip, you suddenly realize, you know, Pastor John isn't all he's cracked up to be. Um, now, this week uh, out at the reservation, a few of us were sitting around joking with each other about getting older. And one of the guys said to me, quote, you have a big birthday coming up this year, don't you? And I do. I have a big birthday coming up this year. I am no longer going to be a man in and around my 30s. <laughs> this year, I will actually be turning 30 years old. And so we were joking about that. And uh, I just kind of jokingly said, yeah, and look, what have I done with my life? Uh, what, is it? What, have, what have all these years, these 30-plus years amounted to? I was joking um, not because I think they've amounted to anything, but I didn't really mean it. I was just kind of saying it. And, and while I was joking, another friend kind of shot back with a quick retort that stayed with me over the week. He didn't mean it mean. In fact, I think he was just said what came to his mind, but I can't get it out of my head ever since it stuck with me. I said, you know, yeah, I'm going to be, um, truth is I'm going to be 50 this year. And I thought to myself, yeah, you know, I shot out the saying, what has it all amounted to? And he looked at me and he said, what are you trying to do, build a legacy for yourself? And so let me repeat that because it really struck me when he said it. What are you trying to do? Build a legacy for yourself? One of the most successful television shows of all time um, recorded its final episode. Um, Ray Romano, what was the name of that show? Everybody loves Raymond, right? Um, Ray Romano had gone from a struggling stand-up comedian to this fabulously wealthy and staggeringly famous man. Now, prior to that show catching on, he had lived in his parents' basement until he was 29 years old. Some of your parents are saying, please don't tell my kid that. <laughs> By the end of, it, of the sitcom's run, he had become the highest paid actor per episode in television history. So it was the wrap-up party, and after fi finishing the last show of the series, he stood before the audience and he reviewed how his life had changed and, and who he had become. When he moved to New York nine years earlier, he said his big brother Richard had tucked a note into his luggage. Ray read it in tears to the audience. He pulled it out and read it to the audience, and it said this. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, if he accomplishes lots of things, if he builds up some big legacy of accomplishments, if he acquires lots of stuff, if he accumulates plenty of titles, what does it all matter if his soul dies? And so, as my friends 
comment to me about, well, what are you trying to do, build a legacy for yourself? As it rattled around in my head this week, I came across several vignettes about people caught up in legacy building. One was entitled, there were several, I'll read you just a couple. One was entitled Successful Man. I think a lot of us can resonate with some of the ones I'm going to share with you. Successful man wrote, when I was young, I had finished college and started life. I was married. I had children. I got a job as a financial analyst for an investment firm in Manhattan. I monitored the world. Currencies were my specialty. I'd placed bets on when the yen was going to go up and when the euro was going to go down. I had monitors that kept me in touch with every time zone of the hour of every day. My cell was on vibrate 24 hours a day because a window could open and close at any time. My boss was a remarkable man one of the inventors of the hedge fund. Everybody who worked in the firm was 20 years younger than he was. And so sometimes we would just sleep on cots in our offices to be able to pull together triggers uh, on deals in a heartbeat. I got more money for Christmas bonuses than my dad ever dreamed of making in his lifetime. My family lived in an apartment not far from Central Park. The kids went to a private school we could barely afford. We bought a place in the suburbs that we would escape to on weekends. I would wake up at 5 a.m. and I would start this coffee IV and I would live on adrenaline all day. My wife did most of the day-to-day stuff with the kids. We had kind of an inside-outside arrangement where I was Mr. Outside. I had only one secret. I heard voices. One voice, actually. It came at random. I could never make out what it was saying. Whenever it spoke, something else was going on or someone else was making noise or I was on my way somewhere. Now, it bothered me, but I I couldn't figure it out. When I would try to be still to try to catch it, I heard nothing. It was like footsteps behind a character in a movie. As soon as the character, character stops to see if there really are footsteps, the footsteps stop too. One day when I got home from work, though, I heard it clearly. I'm your soul, and I'm dying. And I didn't hear it again for many years. The second vignette was from someone called the not-so-successful woman. She wrote, reflecting back on her life, I'm in a seventh-grade algebra class sitting next to a boy who's smarter than me. And so during the test, I sneak a look at his paper. Not enough to get caught once or twice, enough to help me move up to an A-. I don't really think about whether or not I deserve this grade, or, or what I'm, if what I'm doing is fair to the other students, I know that if I get a good grade, I'll be happy and my parents will be proud. And so I dimly tell myself that because I really did study and because most of the questions I did answer myself, it's not really cheating. I've done this before. Outside of the risk of getting caught, it doesn't really bother me. So I'm playing in the finals of a tennis tournament. I come to the net and my opponent hits a lob over my head. I call it out, though it wasn't. There's an umpire at the net who doesn't initiate calls, but he's available to arbitrate. My opponent trusts me. She doesn't question my call. The umpire, whom I know, looks at me after the point. Does he know? I feel queasy now. Is it because I cheated, or is it because I think he knows I cheated? I mean, how much better would I feel if I I had simply cheated and no one had noticed? How much worse would I feel if everyone knew? Not just that the call was wrong, but that I had done it deliberately. My mother and my father achieved so much, I could never compete. I was never the pretty one or the smart one or the talented one. 
I was the one that just kind of filled out the family roster. Now I'm married, but my marriage brings me little pleasure. My husband is as committed to his career as he is passive at home. I want to scream at him sometimes, because anything would be better than his shallowness and his silence. I tried teaching, but I didn't do it well. I tried writing, but every rejection from every publisher is so painful I can't bring myself to risk it again. And so I I work at a job now that I don't like and it doesn't challenge me. I feel buried. My two daughters struggle with not being liked by boys and not having the right appearance. When I see other parents at school or church with children who look so successful and so happy and from whom life and school and athletics just come so easily, I find myself feeling furious with them and with God and myself. I'm not an alcoholic, but I... I have to tell you that I look forward to three glasses of wine every night so I can finally feel relief from this knot in my gut. I do not expect that my life will ever be any different. And so there were more vignettes. In fact, there was one from someone called Preacher Man. I couldn't identify with this at all. It was about a pastor who was hurting and frustrated because he was unable to build and achieve what he wanted in ministry. And as a result, he was becoming bitter and envious and and jealous and slanderous. As the author related each of the stories, he was trying to get across in each one of them the cry of the human soul. As life is going on and the accomplishments either are piling up or they're not piling up. Even if they are, they're not satisfying. Here's what I can tell you. Having now lived somewhere beyond the 30 years, if you live long enough, it is only a matter of time to your soul will cry to. And the question becomes, will you hear it? I'm going to give you a great line. I read this week, moms, especially on Mother's Day, you want to to have a good parenting line on your fridge, I would tell you to write this one down. I don't have it as an overhead for you. Maybe we'll put it up on Facebook because I can't get this one out of my head since I read it. Dallas Willard, he's kind of maybe the premier Christian spiritual formation teacher over the last 50 years. This is what he said about accomplishments. He said, the most important thing about you is not the things that you achieve. It's the person that you become. The most important thing about you is not the things that you achieve. It's the person that you become. And the problem for so many of us is that the world only seems to value achievements, not who we're becoming. The last couple of weeks, I've been helping a couple of family members with their resumes, and they all, you know what, all they contain are accomplishments. That's what the world wants to know. That's what the world values. But it says nothing about the kind of person that you're becoming behind your career bullet points. So in my mind, I just keep come, thinking to myself, John, why don't you start caring about the kind of person you're becoming than what you're achieving? Jesus tells a story about a situation like this. Luke recounts it for us, and it forces us to get a second opinion, not on what we're accomplishing, but what we're becoming. In fact, it's so important that Jesus not only tells it in parable form, and he says he tells it in parable form because he's trying to slip it, in a sense, past the guard of your hearts. He then explains the parable just to make sure that, that his followers would get it and that you and I wouldn't miss it either. Here's what he said. When a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. He has these women with him that we just shared, shared about. 
says, a farmer went out to sow his seed. They would have understood this concept. Farming was, a, it was an a, a, a agriculturally based economy. Farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some seed fell along the path, and it was trampled on, and the birds ate it. And some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked out the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil, and it came up and it yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. And when he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. May I say that to you this morning? Whoever in the room has ears to hear this morning, may you hear. Now this story contains three elements, all right? Very rudimentary concept here, but we miss it a lot. The story contains three elements. It's a story about seeds and a sower and soil. Now, this is one of the parables where you look at the elements and you notice that only one of them holds constant. The other two don't change. When you find the element that changes in Jesus' parables, that's the hinge to the story. It, It shows you what Jesus is driving at. So here we have seeds and a sower and a soil. The seeds don't change in the story. This is not, understand, this is not a story about good seed and bad seed. The seed, the word of God, the words of the kingdom, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this seed will always bear fruit if you give it just half a chance. The seed in the story does not change. Now in the story, the sower doesn't change either. This isn't a story about good farmers and bad farmers. In fact, if you notice anything about the sower, it's how generous he is, how extravagant he is in broadcasting the seed everywhere. He doesn't seem to be careful about where it lands. He's just a generous sower, lavish with the seed. And so the sower doesn't change. And the seeds don't change. And so what's the variable? The soil. The soil is the part that changes. Whether or not the seed takes root and thrives depends on the soil. You can count on the seed. Understand this. You can count on the seed. The seed always works. You can count on the sower. He's always sowing. Everything hinges on the soil. And of course, the soil, I mean, it represents you and me and human beings. And so we're going to have a conversation on this Mother's Day about the condition of the soil. You can replace soil with your heart or your soul. It's the deepest part of you. Here's the key to the story, though, and I need you to to understand this, this this Sunday morning. Don't make this story simply about others and evangelization, which we often do. We'll often say, oh, this is a story about spreading the word of God. And so some people will accept it and some people won't. And it's all about the reason some people accept it and some people won't. There's truth to that, okay? There's truth to the fact that some people aren't interested in God. Others people will have some interest in God for some amount of time. And and a certain portion, a small portion of it, if you notice, will actually grow up and change. and, And the Holy Spirit will change them and they'll be transformed. You can interpret the story that way, and I think there's truth in interpreting the story that way. But when you just look at it from that way, you are making a radical assumption about yourself. Do you know what the assumption you're making about yourself is? I have good soil. And we do it all the time, right? Well, I read this. I'm good soil. This explains why they don't accept Christ. So join in the story with me. Jesus said... 
that some of the seed fell along the path. Now, in the Middle, ne- in the Middle East, conditions are dry. And so the path is the place where the farmers would walk. They would spread seeds on each side of the path. The path is where the sheep would make their way to water and to graze. The path was hard. The path is dry. The seeds on the path don't have a chance. And so Jesus, when he explains this parable, he says this regarding the the seed on the path. He says that it's trampled on and the birds ate it up. He would go on to teach that those along the path are the ones who hear and the devil comes and takes away the word from the hearts so they might not believe it and be saved. Here's the deal. Hearts and souls and human beings, because we're all human beings, we're all subject to the, the, the human condition and to the human experience. Hearts and souls and human beings over time This will happen. You don't have to do anything. This will happen. Hearts and souls and human beings over time will get hard. They just do. If you live long enough, you will begin to experience this. The things that used to bring you joy no longer bring you as much joy. The things that used to move you to tears now barely touch your heart. It's almost for many as a, of us as this, if over time, we begin to put and place this hardened shell around our parts so that the pain and the disappointment of the human experience no longer impacts us. My daughter Caroline is here this morning. My kids all tasted for the first time the sting of death when they lost their grandfather a couple months ago. And it was very hard and and painful for me to watch. That was the hardest thing about losing my father-in-law, was watching my children taste the sting of death for the first time. But my daughter Caroline, just a couple of weeks later, lost one of her best friends, one of her 14-year-old friends, to cancer. And so I watched her weep over her grandfather, and I watched her weep over her friend. And if I'm honest, do you know what else I started to watch? I watched her heart begin to callous a little bit. And I started to think, Lord, I, I, I know what's going to happen because this happened to me. I know that, I know that there's going to be a hardness that's going to start to build around her soul and she's going to stop letting people in. She's going to start keeping people at a little bit of a distance so she doesn't get hurt as bad anymore. See, if you live long enough, you'll start to form these protective shells. And, and when, when we form them, we, they always kind of result in, in changing... The, the kind of people we are. We go from being a people that are filled with hope and belief to being a, a cynical people or a suspicious people. You can see this in the scripture. It goes all the way back to creation, right? Cain was probably the first hardened soul. His brother Abel sacrifice, uh, sacrifices to God and it's accepted by God. He sacrifices to God and God accepts Abel's but doesn't accept his. And so anger and disappointment grow in Cain and he kills Abel. And you see it spread generation to generation. Jacob is hardened against Esau. David is estranged from his brothers. The same thing happens to David's son. The sins of the father, generation after generation. Joseph's brothers' hearts are hardened against him because they see that that his father loves Joseph but not them. And so they hate Joseph. When he tells them about his dreams, they hate him all the more. And their minds become filled with anger. And they, they become envious. Their wills become hostile. They lie to their father. They rationalize their actions. Think about this now. Past hurts harden hearts. They just do. If you know someone, or maybe you are someone who finds it so hard to feel, 
to love. Is it possible that you're holding on to such hurt and, 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 and damage that you've built up kind of a deep protection mechanism? Maybe so much so that you no longer can even feel God in your life, let alone hear from him. My wife and I were talking about a, a friend that was sexually abused as a, a child yesterday. And just, we know the family well, and, and the, the, this is a wonderful person, and, but that, that pain that she was caused as a child has prohibited her, especially as she's gotten older, from the ability to relate in a loving fashion to people. Not that she's mean or angry, she's just distant. Just unable to express words of deep passion or longing or, or a heartfelt word. And when this happens, the heart gets calloused. Oftentimes underneath this is, is fear, the, the fear of being rejected, the fear of looking foolish, the fear of being hurt, the fear of, of another man leaving, the fear of another woman rejecting, the fear of another person getting the job again. And so we just shut down and we become hard. Here's the thing we know about footpaths. Footpaths are hard and they're narrow. And so we close our minds to new possibilities, to, to, to different things. I mean, I, I, I've lived long enough to see this stuff. If you, you see in your children, if you watch your children develop over time, I have kids that are, are academically great and academically challenged. I have kids that are athletically great and athletically challenged. I mean, you have enough kids and everybody's different. God gives everybody different abilities, right? And so one of the things that we learned in our culture, this is a culture which demands academic performance, right? I remember going to the uh, Westmore Central to the high school orientation, and they went through this whole thing about... Um, your kids, and they said at one point, well, if your kid, you know, reads five books a night, and your kid gets this score and all this, then you really have something. And one of my kids struggled academically, and I thought to myself, so what are you saying I have? One of the things I noticed about my kids, right, is children, when, when I was in track, I might have told you I was a rather good track athlete back in the day. Anyway, um, there's a guttural moan in the first service. Uh, my coach looked at me one time, he said, I figured you out. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you constantly downplay yourself so that you never disappoint anybody. And I, he was right. Like, I would never tell anybody I was any good because I didn't want to disappoint them. Because I was building this little thing, I wanted to protect my heart, right? Um, sometimes our kids, right? If your kid struggles academically, what you might start to notice with your kid is that they're not going to try. You know Why? Because it's a lot easier to take an F when you didn't try than to get an F when you did. And you live long enough in this life and fears and hurts, they build this callousness around our heart and our hearts grow hard. And so you can't, when your heart is hard, you can't open your mind, your narrow mind, to a loving God or a forgiving Savior. You can't open your mind and your heart to an identity beyond what you could carve out with your accomplishments. Faith in a Savior, despite all of the historical evidence that would prove it out. A softening to God. Well, a heart that's been hurt or disappointed too many times, oftentimes that seed of the gospel, the seed is good and the sower is full of love, but the truth of God is and what he does and how much he loves, it never makes it into the heart. It sits there. 
and it's picked off by the enemy of your soul. One writer put it this way. You see, souls can be saved when the soil gets soft. It takes a little, tiny, little bit of softness in the soil to give the seed a chance. Because the seed, the word of God, the truth of the gospel, the person of Jesus is stronger than you can imagine. One tiny seed could break up an entire sidewalk if it can find just a little room to breathe. The heart and soul is more vulnerable to being saved than it knows. But first it's going to need to be willing to forgive and to trust and to love and to take a chance to maybe get hurt again. But you could find your soul. Now here's the truth. Breaking up a hardened path is hard work. It's painful work. The ground doesn't come up easy. Because if you would commit yourself to beginning to forgive, if you would commit yourself to maybe reaching out for help to get some counseling, if you, if you would commit yourself to maybe bringing light into dark places of sin in your life that have control, maybe to get with a pastor or speak with an elder here at Mendham, God will bring new life to your soul. All of the things that you read about Jesus in the Bible will go from being stories to bringing life into your heart. The gospel will take root. But breaking up hard ground takes work. You have to identify your hardened heart and you have to commit to the work that's necessary for it. And so I'd ask you as you read this this morning not to think about, well, those people out there, they have hardened hearts, they won't accept the gospel. To maybe stop for a moment and go, is it me? Because maybe I've read the gospel so many times, I've never examined my own heart to see if there's anything actually growing here. Maybe you need to look and say, have I become cynical? I was talking with one of my kids. My poor kids are here this morning, but tell me their stories, and they're good stories. That's why I never tell you who tells them. But I was talking with one of them yesterday, and they said, Dad, you know what I've noticed about myself? I was a very proud father moment for me. Um, they said, Dad, you know what I've noticed about myself? Everybody thinks I'm really friendly and nice, and I say all these nice things to people. But what I've started to notice is the nice things that I'm saying out of my mouth about them are not the things that I'm thinking in my mouth about them while I'm saying them. <laughs> right? And so they're starting to understand, I might have a, hard, a hardened heart here. I know, how, I know what to say to get you to like me, but I don't really feel that way. See, out of the mouths of babes, right? If you're willing to acknowledge that truth about your heart, about the truth is maybe oftentimes I just want to believe the worst about folks, or, or an, I'm, I'm an ungrateful person. If, if maybe you would look and say, you know what, I tend to complain all the time. You might have a hard heart that needs to be broken up, that needs to be plowed a little bit. Maybe your heart needs to be softened by tears of repentance. Maybe you have to look at yourself honestly, even in our relationships with spouses. I mean, is your heart soft enough that you, you could have an honest conversation with each other? Or are you so hardened and closed down that you can't even say things to each other anymore? Look, the soil is never going to cry out, break me up. There's an old song, right? Breaking up is hard to do. That's the truth of the soil of our hearts. But the seed, the word of God, the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, what he's done for you, who, who you are in Christ is powerful beyond what you can imagine. There could be enormous hardness, but if you will just give it one little opening, God is waiting for you just to give him a chance. 
Maybe just a word of prayer. God, do whatever you need to do. Because I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to be this way anymore. I want to start to become tender-hearted. I want actually some growth in my life. I'm tired of just reading about the gospel. I'm tired of hearing the stories of other people's changed lives. But mine still is untouched. The soil's got to be soft, God, and I've allowed mine to grow hard. And now, as I share each of these, can I just make a little plea to moms along the way since it's Mother's Day? Word to moms. Please understand this. The wor- this, is, this is so key. The world will naturally harden the hearts of your kids. You do not need to work on hardening the hearts of your kids. The world will do that for you just fine. Your job is to soften it. Now, I have to tell you the truth. Might your child, might he or she be more successful if you allow their heart just to callous over? If you make them hard, i got to make them hard because the world is hard. Yes, they might. They might pile up more accomplishments. They might finish first more often. They might get more titles, but I'm telling you, their soul will die. Moms, break up the soil for your kids day after day after day. Speak into their hearts. Jesus said there was a second kind of soil. He said it it was a rocky ground. When he described what the rocky ground was like, he said this, those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word, this powerful seed of the gospel, with joy. And when they hear it, they're joyful, but they don't have any root. They believe it for a while, but in a time of testing, they fall away. Now, in the Middle East, I think Maggie's hopefully going to put up a picture of the tear gardens. There they are. In In the Middle East, Jesus is day, farming was done in terraced conditions. They would put stone walls together to block off the terraces. Now, it's easy for me, and so what would happen is the farmer would come through, and he would, he would throw the seed, and some would land on those rocks. And, and it would begin to grow, but it would quickly die out. Now, I live in Long Valley. I am very familiar with rocky ground. In fact, I can't grow, it's like, if, if it's not rock, it's clay. Um, and it's very frustrating, because I'd like to have this nice, beautiful yard, and most of the time, I have crabgrass and rocks. In fact, we had some tree work done a couple years ago, and there's this one area in my front yard where this rock sticks up, and all around it, I can't grow grass because the soil is so thin, it can't take any root. So when the guy came in, he had a big front-end loader, I said, could you pull that rock out for me? I can't get to it. Oh, no problem, sir. About a half hour comes back, he knocks on the door, I said, yes. He goes, sir, I've been working on that rock. If I pull that rock out of the ground, your, cl- your house will collapse. <laughs> um, said, that, that rock is as big as your home. Um, and so if you come to my house today, I'll show you my front yard. There's this rock, and it keeps grass. I have put soil on top. I've done everything. I can't grow grass there because the roots will not grow, get deep. See, Jesus is saying that growth, any kind of spiritual growth in your life, is going to require some soil that is deep. And so the question to you and I is, are you putting down roots deep into devotion with Christ? Last year in our church, uh, we had a class that worked through Richard Foster's famous book, Celebration of Discipline, on the classic disciplines of the Christian life, of of how to, to grow deep in Christ. And when he starts the book, he says this, quote, superficiality is the curse of this age. 
It's a shallow world, shallow relationships, superficial conversations, hurried moments of prayer, too much television, internet 24-7, superficial commitment, thousands of Facebook friends, but I don't go out with any of them. And that characterizes not just our relationships with each other, but our relationships with God. Now, maybe this is true for you. Maybe there was a time where you were so excited about God and the promises of God, the gospel is explained, and you got baptized, and you got in a small group, and you signed up for a missions trip, and you're serving. But there's a truth here, and again, it's for all of us. It's not for them out there. It's for us here. Here's what Jesus is talking about. It's common. Maybe you thought you were signing up for the cruise, but you got the cross. Maybe as we talked about earlier in the series, you came to Christ because you were going to consume all the goodies that were going to be dispensed. You were looking forward to all the promises of God, but you didn't realize that there was a cost attached or that following Jesus didn't ensure that everything was going to go just the way you wanted it to in this life. And so Jesus says, here's what happens. When trouble hits, when crisis or loss or persecution, when the job doesn't come through, the doctor's report turns out not to be okay, when your kids still won't return your phone call, when the costs become real, or maybe my problems all don't go away, oftentimes, Jesus says, most of the time, you will discover you never sank your roots deep into anything, and your faith will wither and dry. It's true everywhere in our world today, right? This lack of commitment, things aren't going okay, things get difficult, I bail, I, I change jobs, I, I change marriage partners, I change ministries, I got to get a new church. Because roots require time and continuity and endurance. If your, whole, if your soul is hurting this morning, if it's crying, is it possible that, that both in your relationship with God and your relationship with others in this world, all you've ever done is fed it just spiritual junk food? Surface-level talk, surface-level devotion, surface-level prayer, surface-level faith, no relationships of depth or time, an inability to, to let anybody speak a tough word into your life. I know some conversation should involve the Mets or the Jets. I get it. But every conversation? We have to work on getting deeper with our husbands and with our wives and most importantly, with God. Mom, you got to till the soil here. Let me explain something. Your husband is likely not going to be good at this. We are, as I've described myself to my wife, I know it's a politically incorrect term, but just bear with me for the moment. We are, by gender, a relationally retarded group. Um, we find it very often hard to speak of the things of the heart to get beyond, I was just out in the foyer and I was talking to my friend and we started talking about the Mets. And he looked at me and he said, we need to go a little deeper. I hate when people do that to me about my own sermons. But <laughs> moms, if, like I keep telling my kids, I don't care about, you know, I don't care about your grades and I don't care about your athletic accomplishments, I care about you. But when I come home from work, do you know what I ask them about every day? Their grades and their athletic accomplishments. Okay, remember the Facebook video? If I were to go on your Facebook timeline, moms, what are the pictures you're putting up about your kids? What is it communicating to them? Their achievements, their accomplishments. You might not be saying it, but, but live breathing in for 18 years. And you start to buy into the system too. And your heart dies. Your soul dies. Mothers, understand this. 
Nobody else is going to do this for your children. There is no one else coming that will till the hardened soul, that will speak life in deep places into your child. It's a unique opportunity, it's a unique gift that you've been given to do that with your kids. Lastly, Jesus said that other seed fell among thorns. Describing that, he said, the seed that fell among the thorns, that stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they they get choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they don't mature. And see, the problem here is there's, there's soil, and it's good soil, but it's wasting its nutrients. It's wasting its life on weeds, and the seed, the good seed, just getting choked out by the competition. It's not bad soil. It's just cluttered. Somebody said a long time ago, you want a second quote? I'll give you a second quote today. Neither of these are my quotes. Somebody said a long time ago that if the devil can't make you sin, he will make you busy because either way your soul will shrivel. And our world will divert your soul's attention because it is a cluttered world and clutter is the most dangerous thing to us because it's subtle. Now, I had nothing to do with the women's retreat. Nothing. I couldn't be more proud of what went on here yesterday. Right? And that's how ministries grow when I, when I don't need to lead them and my wife doesn't have to do all the women's ministry stuff when, when the people put... But, but what's amazing is the ladies that ran this thing, they understood this and came up with that whole topic to, to get at the issues. Ladies, this is so important because our lives become cluttered not with bad things. It's not like we fill our lives up with bad things. Like you might be sitting there going, well, my heart's not hard towards God. I'm not defiant or rebellious. You would say, I'm not deliberately superficial. I don't bounce around from relationship to relationship or church to church. But the clutter thing might really strike a chord. Because you know why? I know how busy you are. Because I am too. I'm really busy. Raise your hand if you're busy and tired. See? This is what the scripture is saying. The seed is good. The sower is good. The soil might even be okay, but man, when you start to pack too much into that soil, it will choke out the new life of Christ available to you. Jesus says it's a deadly enemy. It'll drain your purpose. It'll make a mockery of all your good intentions. So even though you're not shallow or hard, it leads to, see, understand this, even though you're not shallow or hard, it leads to the exact same result. No spiritual life and your soul dies as you're consumed with worries about bills and clothes and and sports camps and and private coaches for kids. Do you know where I have to go after church today, on Mother's Day? To a private coach. See, I'm just like you. I'm struggling with it too. Do you know what my daughter's field uh, uh, field hockey practices are? Sunday morning, same time as church. Do you know what time my daughter's field hockey games are? Sunday night, same time as youth group. I live a life just like you. And I'm trying, to bring, I'm trying to bring balance in it. I'm trying to live in the tension just like you. We're all in the same boat, but if we don't create space, if I say every time, no, you never need to go to youth group, oh, yeah, we got to get you with that coach. No, you, never, you can't miss a game. That's not the way it's going to be in my house. My kids know that, but they also know that there's going to be times where they're going to miss church. Now, that's me. You set your own parameters, but, but there's a tension there. Look, I don't have time to go into this, but we all know this is an issue in our lives. 
If you can't feel God, if you, if you feel distant from God, if you're not hearing from God, please, please, please think about simplifying your life. Sell some stuff. Take some things off the calendar. Moms, one last time. You are modeling the way for your children. You are creating for them a calendar that they will likely live in the rhythm of the rest of their lives. Every moment of their lives does not need to be filled with play dates. Every moment of their lives doesn't need to be filled with some school activity or sports activity. Would you create some space for them? Please teach a little bit of countercultural living here. Please. I mean, one thing about my kids will tell you, when they were growing up, for the most part, we were able to have family dinners almost every night. Now, I know the world is different than just when 20 years ago. I understand. It's much more busy than it was 20 years ago. Now you actually have to plan to have dinner together. It doesn't happen. But would you think about planning it? It is important. If you're going to farm the soil of your kids' souls, you have to live in the tension of church and sports. Please don't keep telling your kids all you want for them. It's important you hear this. Don't keep telling your kids that all you want for them is to be happy, but then constantly equate their happiness to their successes and accomplishments and cares of this world, to the piling up of their things. Because when we do this, we create bad soil in the souls of our kids. And finally this. Jesus said there was good soil too. He said the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, who retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. Get this now. See, the seed was good and the sower was good. It's all about the soil. If you have good seed and good soil, it will produce a crop. It just does. The crop, the accomplishments of that life might not be the kind of thing you can put down on your resume, but the crop of the kingdom is ultimately so much more valuable. It includes hearts and souls as you become an agent of the king, as you become a farmer yourself throwing seed, as you yourself become a fisher of men. The crop includes your own heart. It includes your own soul. As the word of God and the hope of the gospel and the love of the Father shown through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his Son, as that takes deep root in your soul, it'll bring purpose and joy and peace and life, real, eternal, abundant life. Band, come up. Stop looking outside of the walls at the church and, say, and saying, like, like I fall victim to, this is why the gospel's not growing out there because they have hard hearts and because they're so busy and start looking at your own heart like I have to my own and start going, maybe this is why the gospel's not growing. Because we're not producing any crops. Because I got a hard heart. Because I'm really busy. Because I'm always keeping it shallow. Has your soul grown cold? Is it crying? Maybe even more dangerously, has it, has it quieted? This Mother's Day, let me conclude with a question that each of us has to struggle with to improve the soil into which the truth of the gospel is planted. This is a question for moms, too. As you do the most important job in the world, you are the only farmer that is going to be working in the soil of your kid's soul. Here's the truth. The sower will sow. That's what he does. Here's the truth. The seed will grow. It's good seed. It's powerful seed. But it is up to you to prepare the soil. What will you do to prepare the soil? And so, Lord, 
open our eyes to see the truths of our own hearts, the truths of our own souls, the places where we've grown hard, the places where, where we've grown cold, where we've allowed cynicism, the religion of our day, to become our own religion. Lord, would you lead us to a desire to be something more than simply superficial, both in our relationships at home and at work and with you? And Father, would you help us to slow down, understanding there is no greater tool of the enemy than hurry. In Jesus' holy name.